good morning, afternoon, or evening for wherever you may be joining us from today. Welcome to the Life Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. It is a great honor to be able to bring the Word of God to you today. Normally, I would be up here singing, um, and, and I would just want to say thank you to all of you for engaging in worship today. Um, normally, I don't have to sing with a mask, and um, today I was in your shoes, and I, I realized how frustrating that is. I couldn't sing for more than two lines without my mask getting in the way, and, and so I thank you. Uh, for, for, for doing your due diligence, and, and as we try to keep people safe here at Life Church, I thank you for, for abiding by our protocols, and I can't wait for the day that we can worship without a mask, but until that happens, um, I will be here and, 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 and ready to worship in whatever capacity I can. I know the world's going crazy right now, even this week, things have been going crazy in, in terms of COVID and everything that's happening, but um, it is good to be able to gather together. We're not restricted here today and in coming in, we're doing everything that we need to do to be safe, but it is so good that we still can keep our doors open, we can come in and we can gather in the presence of God and we can worship together. What a privilege, what a privilege we have. I'm sure that many of us throughout this season have realized the tendency to possibly take that for granted uh, when all of a sudden we can't necessarily do what we've always, always done. And so it's so great to be able to come into the presence of the Lord and join with you today. Um, we're going to jump into the Word of God this morning. Um, if you've been here over the last few weeks, you know we've been in a series that's called what? Help. Quite simply, just help. Anybody here ever had to call somebody for help? We've been in a series called Help. I don't like having to ask for help. I don't know about you, but um, I will do pretty much anything before I have to ask somebody for help. I'll hurt my back. I will, I will make it, the workload twice as difficult just because I don't like to ask for help. I don't know if it's a, a complex I have where I don't want to burden somebody or I don't want to make uh, an inconvenience for somebody um, or maybe it's just my pride my, my pride that says I want to be able to take the credit for it but I don't always want to ask for help but over the last few weeks in this series we've been learning that God himself has sent us a help he sent us a, the helper as a matter of fact our one of our key texts over the last few weeks is found in John 14 and 26 but the helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the word of God tells us that God himself will send us a helper. And that, that helper, we know it today as the Holy Spirit. And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about how the Holy Spirit becomes our help. It's a help to us in many areas of our life. It's a, our, our strength. It's our comfort. It's our We've been talking a lot about this, and so today we're going to continue in this same vein. And, and if I had a subtitle today, it would be this, Help to Change Me. Help to Change Me. We sang a song today uh, just after we took our, our, our morning offerings, and the bridge of that song said, When I see impossible, you see potential. 
When I see a movable, you see a miracle. We're going to start this morning in a, a passage of Scripture where God simply took the impossible and he saw the potential in it. He simply took what seemed to be immovable and brought out of it a miracle. And I believe today if you will allow the word of God to come forth and you will allow the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit to speak to you, you might be looking at an impossible situation in your life. You might be looking at something that seems immovable in your life. But I guarantee you today that that impossible situation, God right now sees the potential in it. He sees the way out of it. He sees the, the, the immovable thing that you're looking at and he says, I can move that thing. And it comes from the helper, the Holy Spirit. We're going to read a scripture today in Acts chapter 9. And when we read this, you're going to hear about a person's name named Saul. And it might be a little confusing today because in, in the New Testament you hear about Saul and later he's called Paul, Paul the Apostle. And so today when I say Saul and when I say Paul, I really mean the same person. They just are known by two names in the text. Saul was more of his, his classic uh, Jewish name. Uh, because but Paul was or Saul was a Jew, but he grew up as a Roman, and so Saul was more of his Jewish name. Think back to King Saul, and Paul was more of his known Roman name, and so he has these two names that he goes by. And so, don't get confused if I say Saul and then I say Paul. I'm talking about the same person, and I probably won't keep them straight. We're gonna. Start hearing about somebody named Saul. And if you know anything about the Bible, when you first start to read about Saul in the Bible, he is not a nice person. He's not a nice person. Saul shows up in about Acts chapter 8 in, in, in the text, but, but most likely he was around for the majority of, of the book of Acts. We just don't really start to read about him until about Acts chapter 8. And he grew up as a Jew and, and, and as a young boy, he would have been raised in the Jewish traditions and the customs, and he would have studied the law. And we see Paul come onto the scene when the Christians, those who had believed in Jesus and those who had received the Spirit of God and those who were baptized, you think about the disciples on the day of Pentecost in Acts, and they received the Spirit, and they would go out and begin to preach Jesus. The first time we read about Saul, he's standing by as as Stephen, one of, one of the beloved disciples of Jesus, was being stoned to death. And he was holding the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen. Why were they stoning him? Because the, the, the Jews, the old, the old thinkers of the Old Testament law, those who believed in the, the law of the Old Testament, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They rejected that this Christ who came and died, he wasn't really God. He wasn't really who he said he was. And anybody who says that he is, we want to destroy them, we want to destroy their message, and we want to basically silence them. So the Christians in this day, you and I, weren't very popular people. This message that we, we speak about, we sing about how great Jesus was, it wasn't so easy to do that back in the days of the disciples because you had these Jewish leaders and these, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, and they wanted to silence the message of Jesus because they had, this, they had life pretty good. People looked at them as important. They looked at them as the religious leaders. They had status. And then they saw these people called Christians coming in that were challenging that and saying, no, it's not about the laws of the Old Testament, but it's about identifying with Jesus and what Jesus did for you. I just, I just told you that the veil was torn when Jesus went to the cross. 
These Old Testament thinkers, the thought that you could simply go into the presence of God would just make their heart stop. Because only certain people and only certain, only certain rituals could get you into that place. But the New Testament church said, I have access to God through Jesus. And so Saul, he's holding the coats in Acts chapter 8 of Stephen who's being stoned and stoned to death for his faith. And Saul's standing there and he's in agreement with what's happening. Saul was very proud of his religious roots as a, as a Jew who knew the law and who knew the Old Testament Saul was, was very adamant to stopping those who believed in the message of Jesus. The, the, the Bible would say that Saul would, would, would go house to house and he would drag people out and, and arrest people who would claim and profess to be believers of Jesus. Paul himself, later on in the book of Acts, the text would say that Paul would, would vote in favor of putting to death those who, who they would say were blasphemers. Blasphemers meant that they believed Jesus was the Messiah. He was God robed in flesh. And so Paul or Saul, he's not the best person when he first comes into the text. He's not a person that many of us would probably want to run into or be around. Remember I said today that God can take an impossible situation and he can see the potential in it. We're going to start in Acts chapter 9 and start reading about this character, Saul, that we've just been talking about. It says in Acts 9 chapter 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The disciples of the Lord, these are the ones that we read about, the ones who walked with Jesus, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way. At this point, the disciples and the believers of, of Jesus really weren't called Christians. They were just referred to as the way. The way after Jesus. They were followers of Jesus. And if he found any who were of the way, either men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Why would he want to bring them bound to Jerusalem? He wanted to take them and try them before the courts of the high priest in Jerusalem. And, 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 and if they're found to be blasphemers, if they would openly confess that Jesus actually is Lord, they could be killed. This was no doubt the same high priest that he was approaching for permission to do this that most likely presided over the trial of crucifixion of Jesus. So these people are very aware of who Jesus was. He's very aware of, of the surroundings and who the disciples were, and they want to silence that by whatever means possible. It goes on in verse 3 and says, As he, Saul, journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground. Some say he was on a horse, and he fell off his horse, but there's no real scripture to, to support that. So he may have been on a horse, he may have just been walking, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, also known as Paul, would go on later in Acts to say that that light that he saw was brighter than the midday sun. We're not talking about a light that's just a, a, a little flicker. But Paul would say that that light that he saw and shone into his eyes was brighter than the sun at the brightest part of the day. This was not just a, 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 
an accidental thing. He didn't just catch a, a, a glimmer out of the sky, but something supernatural in this moment happened when Saul was on his way to persecute those who would believe in Jesus, to persecute and to put into trial those who would profess to believe in Jesus. You and I would fall into that category today, many of us here. He fell onto the ground and he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In verse 5, and he said, he recognized what's happening here. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was simply a long object, a a pointed object or a stick that would be used uh, back in these days to get an oxen going in the direction that you would want it to go when plowing. And perhaps you've heard of of sayings like stubborn as an ox. Oxen don't want to go usually where you want them to go. And so you'd have to prod them with the goad. And the Lord is saying, It's hard for you to kick against the goad because when the oxen doesn't want to go that way, he kicks against the prodding of its master and he he hurts himself and he, he, he damages himself because he doesn't feel and hear the prompting of his master. Paul, Saul, no no doubt had heard the message preached about Jesus. He no doubt saw the miracles that were being performed in Jesus' name. He no doubt saw proof that Jesus was who he was, but here, here the Lord is saying, Saul, you're you're kicking against the goad. I'm trying to prod you. I'm trying to lead you in the direction of revelation of who I am, but you're you're kicking against the goad. You're you're kicking against my my prodding arm that reaches out to you. Verse 6 says, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do do. We're going to keep going in the story, but a a couple things that jump out at me at the start of this story is Saul has this supernatural experience that he can't really describe, but he, he, he somehow clues into what's going on and he recognizes that it is God himself that's speaking to him. And in this moment, he asks two questions. And I think that they're very important questions. And I think that they're two questions that each and every one of us at some point in our life have to answer. Some of us here today may have answered those at one point, and somebody here today may never have answered or considered one of these questions. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And Lord, what do you want me to do? Who are you, and what do you want me to do? Saul responded with two of the most important questions that anybody can and must ask. A survey was done a while ago, and in that survey, people were asked to choose three questions they were most likely to ask God if they had an opportunity. Here are the top five responses that people could come up with. Saul could have asked any, any number of questions. Here are the top five responses in this survey, will there ever be lasting world peace? How can I be a better person? What does the future hold for my family and for me? Will there ever be a cure for all diseases? And why is there suffering in the world? 
I'm sure you and I, if we sat down and said, what would you ask God or what would you ask Jesus if you had an opportunity to? You might come up with your own list. But in this moment, Saul asked two of what I would say are the most important questions for a human being to ask at some point in their life. Who are you, Lord? In other words, are you real? Who are you? I had an idea of who you are, but I want to know firsthand from you who it is that you are. And when I realize that truth and when I realize the reality of who you are, what do you want me to do? What do I do with the the new reality of who you are? That you are real, that you did go to Calvary on a cross on a hill and you died for me. What do I do about it? Yes, there's many questions we probably want to ask God. Maybe you've lost a loved one and you want to ask God why. Maybe somebody hurt you and you want to ask why, but I would say more importantly than that today, have you considered who God is? And if so, if you truly believe that he is real, you might not know everything there is to know about him, but you know that we're not just here by chance and we're not just an accident here The next question is extremely important. What do you want me to do? Verse 7 carries on. Remember, he's just been instructed, go to the city of Damascus and wait, and you will be told what you must do. And so verse 7 says, the men who journeyed with him stood speechless. He's not traveling alone. He's traveling with other people. Hearing a voice but seeing no one. They, they heard the voice. It wasn't, it wasn't Saul hearing things by himself. They also heard the voice, but they could not see anybody speaking. And Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, and he saw no one. Saul arose from the ground, and his eyes, when his eyes opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. The backside of this supernatural experience is this, is that when, Paul, when Saul opened his eyes, he couldn't see. He was blind. And I, I don't know if the other men, it doesn't say in the text, it said that they heard the voice, but I don't know if they saw the light. It doesn't appear as though that they were blind as they were the ones who would lead him to Damascus. So perhaps they didn't see the blinding light that Saul saw. But what we do know from the text is that when Saul opened his eyes, physically, he was blind. And, and when I read this story, I have to ask, why blindness? Why, why did this happen? And, and the text in the Word of God isn't really obvious about why he went blind. It doesn't really come out and say, this is why Jesus made him blind after this experience. But as we look at, at, at Saul and who he was and his record of, of being this persecutor and being this proud and arrogant uh, studier of, of Jewish customs and, and, and making the Old Testament law greater than Jesus... It doesn't take an expert to realize that, that Saul was spiritually blind. He was spiritually blind to who Jesus was and the reality that Jesus is the only thing that can save us, that can give us peace, that can give us hope. He was spiritually blind. And in this supernatural experience, he is now physically blind. Perhaps... God is trying to, to, to wake Saul up to the reality of you're not just struggling in your spiritual sense, but I'm going to put a physical illness on you to bring you into a reality of where you're at because you don't realize how blind you really are when it comes to your, your viewpoint of who God is. 
Why blindness? It's a sign of our helplessness without Jesus. It's a sign of the magnitude of God's power. Perhaps God needed to show Saul exactly how powerful he really was. A symbol to come of a new restored sight. But a symbol at the moment of the spiritual blindness in which he had. I wonder what those three days were like for him. The word of God and the Bible doesn't really tell us what those three days look like for, for Saul. But as we get further in the story, it wasn't just a time where he was not thinking about anything or he was just angry or he was just frustrated. I truly believe that during these three days, Saul had an opportunity to begin to die to himself. And something was happening within him where God was doing something. He was speaking to him. He was preparing him. He was working on his heart on these three days. You, you say, well, well how, how, how do you know that? It doesn't say that in the Bible. Well, as we continue to read on, we will see how Saul continues to respond to his blindness. How would you respond today if you were struck with blindness? Probably many of us would be frustrated. Our life would look different tomorrow than it did today because we wouldn't be able to function in the same way. And many of us would be very frustrated with that experience. But something's happening in these three days of blindness that's preparing Saul for what is to come. God is using this not just as a, as a physical ailment to, to get revenge and to get back at Saul for what he had done. As a matter of fact, I don't believe God was mad or angry at Saul at all. When God first spoke to Saul, he said, Saul, Saul. And if you go back into the word of God, when, when, when he uses your name twice, it doesn't mean he's mad at you, but it suggests an intimacy with you. You go back and look at the Old Testament. When he talked to Abraham or he talked to Moses or, or, or you look when he talked to Martha in the New Testament. It suggested that there was a, 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 a careful concern and intimacy that God wanted to have with Saul. Think of that. He's killing Christians. He's killing those who would profess to believe in this Messiah. But yet the Messiah reaches out with a cause for concern and wants to have some sort of a desire of relationship with you speaks to the love that he has even for someone like Saul. Perhaps you're sick and you think that God could not love me. God would not love somebody like me. Why would God reach for me? If God would reach for Saul, he would reach for you. If God would reach for Saul, he would reach for you. So he carries on. Let's pick up the story in verse 10. Saul is journeying with his helpers to the city of Damascus. And when we get to verse 10, the text tells us that now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. Ananias responds, here I am. Verse 11, so the Lord said to Ananias, arise and go out to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might 
receive sight. Let's just break that down. The Lord speaks to a disciple named Ananias. We have not heard about Ananias before this text. There are plenty of other high-profile disciples that we have heard about, but we haven't heard of Ananias. And I find, this is maybe a different message for a different day, but God uses somebody obscure and ordinary to do what's about to happen in Saul's life. And for those of you who know the transformation from Saul to Paul, you know it's nothing short of extraordinary. But God uses an ordinary disciple at Damascus named Ananias. We don't know anything about him either before or after this meeting with Saul. We don't know how he got to Damascus or what happened to him afterwards. But we can consider him an average follower of Jesus Christ. The Lord responds in a vision and Ananias says, here I am. It shows to me he's available. It shows to me he's willing and available to hear from the Lord. And perhaps that's all that God is looking for when he's looking for one of us to do something miraculous in his kingdom. Somebody who's willing to say, here I am, Lord. Speak to me. I am ready to listen to you. Yes, we all want to be used of God. Ananias, here's what I need you to do. You know Saul? What? Saul? You mean mean the guy who's killing us? Keep in mind, I, I know that there isn't headline news and and, and social media, but these disciples knew who Saul was. They knew who Saul was and what his record was. They knew that that they had to be careful of these type of, uh, of, of old religious thinkers because they rejected Jesus and they rejected anybody who preached Jesus. And so Ananias, yes, I'm willing and I'm available, Lord, speak to me. Ananias, this is what I need you to do. You remember Saul from Tarsus. Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he may receive his sight. Understand what happens here. God gives Ananias some very specific instructions. And, and, and I'm sure that Ananias appreciates that because, again, Ananias is about to go and, and, and he's being asked to go and meet somebody who's not very friendly. And so God is as specific as he can be so that Ananias has a certain level of, of, of comfort in what he's about to do. He says, go to this, the street called Straight. Go to the house of Judas because there is going to be somebody there named Saul of Tarsus. And he is praying. That's interesting. He's praying. Saul of Tarsus is praying. Well, he's blind. What's he praying about? You know, it doesn't really expound on this, and it leaves us to wonder what's going through Saul's head. But I, 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 would, I would suggest that perhaps this is the first time that Saul's actually prayed. As a, as a devout religious Jew, he would pray many, 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 many times, but it was a robotical, mechanical prayer. He would never have once prayed in the name of Jesus. He would never have once prayed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I I believe that something is happening to him while he's in his blindness state. Where he's beginning to realize and he's beginning to be softened and awoken to the reality of who Jesus is. And it says that Ananias, Saul will be praying and Saul will have received a vision that you're coming and that you will lay your hands upon him, and he will receive his sight. And so this isn't just a, 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 a haphazard 
meeting between these two people. But God is going before them and he's orchestrating what's about to take place. He says, Ananias, I'm going to use you in a mighty, powerful way. Ananias was simply an ordinary man. He was not an apostle. He was not a prophet. We don't know him to be a pastor, an evangelist, an elder, or a deacon. But God used him because he was an ordinary man. We shouldn't be surprised people like Saul receive God's word with resistance and questioning. We look at Saul, and and we shouldn't be surprised if people like Saul, with his background and his education, have initial resistance. Yet we should expect disciples of Jesus to receive God's word like Ananias did. We should expect disciples of Jesus, as we sit here today and we would call ourselves believers, we should be willing to receive the word of God like Ananias did. God, I'm willing and ready to go. Verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest. Remember, he got a decree from the chief priest that he had authority to bind all who call on your name. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, before kings, and the children of Israel. This is the first time we realize the purpose that God has for Saul. We receive Saul's purpose before Saul even receives his purpose. I don't know what's happening in those three days of blindness, but this is the first time that we hear about why God is so concerned about Saul. It says, he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Verse 16 says, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for mine sake, my name's sake. God chose the most unlikely of people. He chose the most unlikely candidate. And and I'm going to use a word that I heard this week in in, in reference to COVID-19. God chose the most unlikely person to be the super spreader. The super spreader of the gospel. Think about it. God chose Saul, and he appointed Paul, and he has a plan and a purpose for Paul. Remember I said, when you see impossible, when you see impossible circumstance, God is already seeing the potential in that circumstance. God chooses Saul, the Christian killer, the the persecutor, and he says, it's my chosen vessel to bear my name. We see impossible, but he sees potential. Verse 17 says, Ananias went his way and entered the house. He found Straight Street. He found the house of Judas and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, how many of us would call him brother knowing what he did, knowing how many of our own he had hurt? He says, Brother Saul, Saul wouldn't have been able to see a a friendly face He wouldn't have been able to see a friendly uh, 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 body language from Ananias. But what Saul first hears is brother Saul. He speaks with words that Saul would immediately recognize as friendly fire. And says, the Lord Jesus, 
who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. He arose and he was baptized. And so when he had received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Saul enters this circumstance with blindness. He enters his circumstance with blindness. And Ananias responds that, yes, I will go. And yes, I will hear your voice, Lord. And when Ananias lays his hands upon Saul, the word of God says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Another translation uses the words, be filled, be filled. Saul, be filled with the Spirit. And upon the miracle of being filled with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit of God, immediately the blindness falls. Immediately, like scales covering his eyes, he receives his sight at once. And he arose and he was baptized. I don't know what happened in those three days of blindness, but what we see in the Saul that arises after three days of blindness is somebody who is ready and willing to receive the Holy Ghost. He's ready and willing to be baptized. He's ready and willing to go and spend time with those who he once persecuted. Nineteen said when he had received food, he was strengthened. He didn't just receive a physical food with those disciples. Yes, they gave him food. Yes, they shared meals with him. But what they fed him spiritually was far greater than he would ever consume physically. This is a story that most of us marvel at. Here is somebody, the most unlikely candidate to be called a Christian, who has just received this radical transformation of feeling, being filled with the Spirit. And I don't have time to explain all that Paul would go on to do, but know that about 99.7% of the rest of the scriptures I'm going to read in my message today, Saul wrote them. He's the guy who made the, the majority of the books of the New Testament. He's the one who would be the, the, the promoter and the, the founder of more New Testament churches than anybody else. What seemed like an impossibility, what seemed like something so unlikely has become the greatest potential and the greatest story of Christianity today. And I, and I, I don't think that it's just something for us to read, but it's the same transformation that is available to each and every one of us today when we decide, Lord, who are you and what do you want me to do with that? Be filled As Ananias said to Saul, be filled with the Holy Spirit and your spiritual blindness will fall away, Saul. Your spiritual blindness will now become a spiritual awakening to who Jesus is. We marvel at this story, but it's still happening today. I look back just recently to an example. I know we've mentioned it multiple times recently, but we had Josh Razar here. Not too long ago, maybe a couple months ago. And for those of you who were in this service, you remember his testimony. A cocaine addict. Spent more on cocaine than many of us would make in a day at our job. He would take so much cocaine that he could not function in his life apart from his habit. 
And he came and he described the moment when he stood foot in the church in Peterborough, Ontario. And God filled him with his spirit. And from that day on, he never touched another line of cocaine. And God completely physically and spiritually restored him. And now we stand here today and here when he comes to our church and our fellowship and begins to talk about going into countries of the world and, and beginning to preach and seeing thousands and thousands of people being filled with the Holy Ghost and seeing miracle upon miracle in the name of Jesus. That is a modern day Paul. A modern day Saul turned into a Paul. Right in our own backyard. God is still doing this type of work. And it comes only through the help of the Holy Spirit. I don't wish to make you feel uncomfortable today. But I'm, I'm going to point out a couple people. Uh, who, have, who have recently come to our church. Annette and Nell, you're both here today. Um, and, and I hope that I can help to tell your story in a greater way to our church at some point. But um, I know, Pastor, I think a couple weeks ago, you even mentioned um, this couple heard distinctively from God that there was something greater for you in your life. There was something that you were hungering for. There was a fire that you were hungering for that you had yet to receive. You guys had a, a Saul experience where God spoke to you. He put something in you. He put a, a burning in you that you couldn't shake. And, and, and it took you coming from South Africa to Canada to, to Burlington, Ontario, where, where in the last month we've seen his spirit fill both of you. And we've seen you get baptized in his name. That is the call of God. That is the voice of God that drew you in the same way that Saul heard Saul, Saul, Lord, who are you? What do you want me to do? And there's others in this room that we could call on, and you've had a similar experience. Those are only a couple examples, but God is still in the business of transforming the impossible into possibility. He's in the, in the business of taking the most unlikely person you look at your life and it's a complete mess. You look at your life and it's a complete failure. But God says, you are the one that I have chosen. God chose Saul long before Saul chose God. God chose a Saul long before Saul would ever reach out and accept Jesus. And today there might be somebody here. You have not accepted Christ. You have not said, I believe you are who you are. But he's already died for you. He's already died for you. He's already reached out for you, reaching out for you right now. Paul, I'll stop calling him Saul now. Saul referred to, I think, pretty much exclusively as, as, as Paul after his conversion in, in, the, in the text of Scripture. He writes a letter in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 15 and 16, because some of us look at the story and we think it's a great story, but, you know, it's something that happened many, many years ago, and, and what really, what relevance does it have for me today? But 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16 says this, however, I'm going to read it up on the screen. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief 
He said, I am the head of all sinners. <laughs> you look at my record. You look at what I've done. You can call me chief sinner. Call me chief sinner. I've done it all. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering. And listen to this part. As a pattern to those who are going to believe on him. What happened in Saul to Paul? What happened on the Damascus road? What happened when he was, was struck down with such a bright light and had that radical conversion was not a one-time event. But Paul would say, what happened to me? Me being the chief of sinners, what happened to me when God restored me? It was a pattern. It wasn't a one-time thing. But it's the pattern and the model that each and every one of us can follow. Because you and I are just like Saul in the terms that we are sinners. We are messed up. We are full of flesh. We are full of bitterness. We are full of so much junk. But Paul says it is the pattern that God will pull you from that. It is the pattern that his spirit will fill you. It is his pattern that you would be filled with the Holy Ghost and you would find newness of life through the help of the Holy Spirit. And so quickly as, as we go today, I, I realize I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time, but I want to challenge us on areas where we all need to change. Saul, Saul to Paul experienced the greatest change that he ever did. But there's areas in our own lives where we all need to change. Number one, our thinking. Whether you're here today and you've known God your whole life or this could be your very first time in this service. We need the Holy Spirit to change our thinking. We need the Holy Ghost to change our thinking. Even more so in the world that we live in right now where, where you're inundated by just the gloom and doom of what's happening in our world. You need your mind to be transformed by the Holy Ghost. There is more depression. There is more fear. There is more anxiety happening in our world today than ever before. And there needs to be a breakthrough in our thinking by the Holy Ghost. Go ahead and put up on the screen Philippians 2 and 5. Pastor, could you help me for a minute? Just keep your mask on. I'll make sure I stay far apart from you. Grab that. Grab that stick there. Philippians 2 and 5 says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. He, he's talking about a renewed mind, a mind that's been empowered by the Holy Ghost, not a mind of fear, not a mind of depression, not a mind of, uh, of doubt. But he says, let this mind, which is in Christ, be in you. But the, the, probably the most important part of that, of that whole scripture is let. Grab a hold of that. Let. You ever had to tell somebody to let go? See, this is our problem sometimes, is that we hold on. We hold on to depression. We hold on to anger. We hold on to bitterness. We hold on to, to fear that's happening in our world. And you just, you got to let go. Come on, let go. All right, let it go. Let it go. The, 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 the first word in that verse is let, meaning that it doesn't happen automatically. You have to let this mind, let this mind which is in you be, which is also in Christ Jesus. 
Let this mind be in you. Don't hold on to the anger. Don't hold on to the bitterness. Don't hold on to the things that, that used to be. The Holy Ghost has filled you. You need to let this mind be in you. You need to decide today that I am not going to hold on to what happened to me. I'm not going to let a, a past hurt or a past mistake or a past regret hold on to me. But I'm going to let this mind be in me. Paul would say this in Romans 12 and 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The transformation that is in you does not just happen by a, a, an emotional feeling. But you have to decide that you're going to be transformed by the way you think. I truly believe that the devil, the enemy of our soul... All he has to do is get a hold of what we think about and how we think about things, and he has victory in us. But he says, do not be conformed. Don't be conformed to the way this world thinks. I've been, I've been off work from COVID for, for much of the start of this year, and last week was my first week in the office. And, and I'm sure many of you are in similar situations that you can go to work and you can hear everybody and their brother have an opinion on what happens in this world right now. That's being conformed to the way the world thinks. I, be I believe COVID's real. I believe it's deadly. I believe we have to do everything we can. But, but I don't have to be conformed to live in fear and to live in anxiety and to live in isolation and to be scared of you. And, and, and I, I don't have to be conformed because why? I've been transformed. By the Holy Ghost. I've been transformed by His Spirit. I've, I've lost finances over the last six months. Show up at work and they said, we can't pay you your full wage anymore. For the last, I don't know, seven months. Yeah. I got people, I, I get on these conference calls and, and, and meetings and everybody's just panicking and they're angry and they're upset and they're worried and you know what yeah that's the world's way of thinking I don't have to be conformed to living my life with that anxiety because I know that I've been transformed by the Holy Ghost and I'm a child of God and he's going to care for me and he's going to take care of me and I'm going to be faithful to him and he's going to be faithful to me this is the world we live in right now, but it says, let this mind be in you. You've got to decide that I'm going to let the mind of Christ be in me. I'm not going to walk around like everybody else with my head down, but I'm going to stand with my head lifted high. And when somebody asks me why I can be happy, why I can have joy, why I can have peace, I can tell them it's because of the Holy Spirit has changed me. It's my help in ever-present time of need. Let this mind be in you. We need the Holy Spirit to change the way we think or we will drive ourselves bonkers. You won't be able to sleep at night. You won't be able to get rest because you're going to be thinking like the world thinks. But God wants you to know that you are his child and you've been bought with a price. He's not going to leave you in this moment. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. Paul also said, 2 Corinthians 10 and 5. I still remember Sister O'Donnell preaching this message. Cast down imaginations. Cast down imaginations and everything 
that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. You see, there's a world that wants to war against the knowledge of God. You know you're a child of God, but the devil in this world wants to war against the knowledge that you have that you're his child. That you're safe with him. That, you're, that you can have peace with him. That you have all that you need with him. You don't have to get affection from other places that are, that are, that are, that are, are not going to honor you and, and, and treat you well. Because everything you need is in him. The world wants to war on your knowledge of who God really, really is. Moving on. Holy Spirit needs to challenge us. It needs to change us, transform us in our desires. In our desires. Both my hands are raised. Who has bad desires sometimes? I do. It's our flesh. This flesh is our our curse we live with. Surely Paul has a solution to overcome having to deal with bad desires. Surely Paul himself, the one who, who has penned most of the scriptures and, and, and formed most of the modern-day Christianity movements that we would be able to tie ourselves back to, surely he didn't have issues with desires. False. Romans 7, 18. As I said, all these scriptures I'm reading you, Paul is the one who's wrote, written them. And I know that nothing good lives in me. What do you mean, Paul? I just, I just spent 20 minutes telling the church how radical of an amazing transformation you had. And now, now you're telling me that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. You and I have a nature. It's called human nature. That nature is sinful. Nothing you can do about it. No matter how good of a person you think that you are, your nature is sinful. And it's that sin that separates us from God. It's that sin that's like oil and water when it comes to God. Your nature is sinful. And and Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in this flesh. It's my sinful nature. And I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's right, but anybody ever said that? I want to do what's right, but I just can't. Verse 19. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyways. Paul's a real person. Paul would go on to be, you know, one of our greatest apostles of all time. But Paul was a real person, and and, and Paul knew that he had a sinful nature. He knew that he had a sinful nature. He knew that he, was, he, he wanted to be good. He didn't have a lack of desire. He says, I want to do what's right. He had a desire to do what's right. His problem isn't knowledge. He says, I know what is good and what I should do. But he says, the problem is my nature. The, the, the problem is I don't have the power to overcome my sinful nature on my own. I can't do it because I can't overcome this flesh, this sinful nature on my own. And if anybody in this room has a pulse and is breathing, you know how true that statement is. There are things that you try to do on your own apart from God, and you just have not been able to become a better person. You have not been able to overcome that temptation. You've not been able to overcome that thing you don't want to do because you're trying to do it on your own. You know you shouldn't do it. You know it doesn't make you happy. You know it doesn't bring you joy, but you can't overcome come it because it's that sinful 
nature that we live with. And we all have it. We all have it. Romans 8, 12 to 13. What's the antidote to this? Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. You don't have any obligation to listen to that flesh. You don't have any obligation to listen to that sinful nature of your flesh. 13, for if you live by its dictates, every time your flesh commands you to do something, if you live by its dictates, you will die, whether that be spiritual or physical. But if through the power of the what? Our help, the helper that he will send, through the power of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, and you will live. I'm not sure if I gave you verse 14, but 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit are children of God. Paul says, I can't do this on my own. My desires, yes, I know what I should do. Yes, I want to do it. But uh, this flesh thing that I've got here, this sinful nature that I was born with, it has complete control over me unless... The Holy Spirit is flowing through my life. Unless I allow the Holy Spirit to put to death that sinful nature. And when I do, when I'm led by His Spirit, what does that mean? It means I pursue after the Spirit. I'm following after the Spirit in my life. I'm called the children of God. I'll ask the musicians to come so that I don't keep you here longer than I should. The last one is our actions. We need the Holy Spirit to change our actions. Romans 7, 5 to 6, Paul writes this. When we are controlled by our old nature, that old sinful nature that I just can't overcome, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. I just want to pause there for a minute on verse 5. Paul makes a bit of a, a callback to the law. Remember, Paul grew up as a devout Jew studying in synagogues and studying the, the law. He probably could have quoted the majority of the Jewish laws and customs that he was to follow. And he says... We're controlled by our old nature. Sinful desires are at work within us. We know all about that. And the law aroused these evil desires. Because what Paul's getting at there is, at one point I lived under the law. I lived under rules and regulations. I should do this. I shouldn't do that. But what Paul is saying is, the law didn't give me any power to actually keep the law. Parents... You make laws in your house, right? You make rules in your house. Kids, there's no kids. Look at the kids. The moment your parent makes a rule, what do you want to do? He's, He's hesitating because he doesn't want his parents to know. You break it. The law points out your flaw. The law points out your inability to keep the law. Your law points out your desire to break the law. So what Paul's saying is, 
I lived my whole life under this law. I knew the laws, but the law produced a harvest of sinful deeds. The law never gave me any power to actually keep the law. Carry on to verse 6. But now we have been released from the law. We've been released from those rules and regulations that pointed out our flaws, that pointed out those, those, those iniquities in me, that pointed out my weakness, but couldn't do anything about it. For we died to it and no longer are captive to its power. But now we can serve God, not in the old way. See, Paul's just reaching back into his history. and He says, I lived my whole life for that stupid law. I've been freed from it. That law never did a single thing of good for me. But now we know we can serve God not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Because the Word of God says that Jesus, when He came, He didn't come to to destroy the law. The law inherently is good. You have to have law. Mom and Dad, you know that there's a bedtime because it matters. But the law doesn't give you the ability to keep the law. But when Jesus came, the word of God says he came to fulfill the law. He came to give you the power to maintain the law. And so when you're filled with his spirit and when you're filled with the Holy Ghost, you no longer have this law that you're trying to meet that you can never meet. But his power gives you the authority and it gives you the ability to live an overcoming life where you're not controlled by every desire. You're not controlled by every part of your flesh and by every action. Because we're under a new covenant where we are filled by his spirit. this is what Paul is saying to us today the same power that transformed him the same power that 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 brought him to a place of of unprecedented involvement in the kingdom of God where he where he would see things and he would go in the name of the Lord and see miracles happen and he would be able to see thousands upon thousands of people come into a revelation of who Jesus was all came from this person who seemed like an impossibility, who seemed like an immovable object to that early believer church, but became the greatest potential in the kingdom of God. I'd ask you to stand with me today. If Paul's conversion is a pattern we looked at the scripture earlier that we can share in his experience. If Paul's conversion from chief sinner to chief Christian is a pattern for us, then we can share in his experience. First, Jesus must confront us with himself. He must confront us with who he is. Confronts us with our sin and our rebellion against him even if they're done in ignorance. And then as we put our faith in Him, we must humbly ask Him two questions. Who are you? Are you really Jesus? And if you are Jesus, and today I I can't find any compelling argument to say that you're not, what do you want me to do?
And his response to us today is simply, be filled. Be filled with my spirit. Live an overcoming life. Let my spirit change your desires. Let my spirit change your actions. Let my spirit change your thinking. Let my spirit overflow in you. Let my spirit lead you. Let my spirit let you not be conformed to the way that this world operates, the way that this world thinks, the way that this world is run, but you can be free to have my mind in you. Saul's conversion reminds us that it isn't just enough that we are broken before God. Saul was physically broken before God. The blindness that he experienced was a brokenness. But God wants us to use that brokenness as a prelude to his filling. He wants to use your brokenness today as a prelude to your filling to fill you with abundant life, to fill you with his spirit overflowing. Saul was sitting there blind and broken. He was sitting there blind and broken for three days, but it was just the prelude. It was just the precursor. It was just the preamble to what God wanted to fill him with, which was the power of his spirit. And so today as we end this service, I know we can't all flood into an altar space, and if I, if I could, I would love to invite you all to step forward and pray with you. But in these times, I'm just going to ask you where you are today. If you feel like you need the Holy Ghost, if you feel like you need the Holy Spirit to flow fresh into your life, maybe at one time you, you prayed a prayer of repentance and you felt that turning away from the old nature towards God, but in recent times you feel like you're drifting back to that old person. Today God wants to make you new. Today God wants to fill you once again with His Spirit. And so as we begin to sing and as we begin to worship, I'm just going to ask you where you sit in your seats. If that's you today and you want to feel the infilling of his presence, you want him to take over your thinking, your desires and your actions, I just want you to throw your hands towards heaven and begin to worship him. Begin to ask his spirit to fill you. Begin to ask his spirit to come into your life in a new way. Begin to ask his spirit to come into your life in a brand new way today. That's it. People all across this place have their arms raised high. Just begin to call out. If you're in your, if you're with your families, you can take the hand of your family member beside you and begin to pray with them. Some of our pastoral team is just going to reach towards you today and begin to pray a prayer over you that God's spirit would break through. It would break through and do a new work. Isaiah 43 says, Behold, I will do a new thing in you today. Behold, I will do a new thing. Something new will spring forth. The old is passed away. I will make a place for rivers. I will make a place for streams. Even in the place of your wilderness. Even in the place of your barrenness. I will make a way. I will flow in your life again. Thank you for joining us today. We pray this message spoke into your life, your heart, or whatever situation you may be going through. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us at lifechurch.ca on Instagram and on Facebook, just search Life Church and you will find our navy blue logo with the letters LC in the middle. 
Now, before you go, we ask if possible from whatever platform you may be listening to us on, give us a rating or a review or even both and share this message with someone so that they can be impacted by the gospel of the love of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your support and love you all. Have a wonderful week and God bless.